Hello and welcome to the Law and Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder of Law and Sport. On today's podcast, I'll be playing you a recording of the Financial Fair Play Roundtable debate that took place at the Burbeck Sports Business Centre on the 18th of June 2013. Presentations were given by Daniel G, a solicitor at Fieldfisher Waterhouse, Sean Hamill, a director of the Burbeck Sports Business Centre, and Ed Thompson, the founder of financialfairplay.co.uk website. Before we go into the first lecture, I'd just like to thank the Burbeck Sports Business Centre at the University of London, and in particular Sean Hamill, for allowing us to record the Financial Fair Play Roundtable debate. This is one of a series of lectures, conferences and seminars hosted by the Burbeck Sports Business Centre. If you want to find out more about the events run by the Sports Business Centre, go to www.sportsbusinesscentre.com. I'm Sean Hamill, I'm one of the academics in the management department at Burbeck and involved in the Sports Business Centre. I'm going to give a sort of a, a scene setting presentation for about 15 minutes, see if we can keep it down to 15. And then Ed Thompson, who many of you will know runs the uh, financialfairplay.com website, will go and give his own particular take on the issue. And he will deal, I'm not going to deal with the detail of the regulations, etc. I'm, I'm assuming that there's already a reasonable amount of knowledge and we've got two experts on it here anyway and they'll talk a little bit about it. And then Dan, Daniel Gay at the end, who's a pretty well-known sports lawyer and uh, blogger, and fairly authoritative blogger, I think we can, I can say, his authority, um, who's written a lot about these issues, he will then come in and give his take um, on you know, the, 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 the regulations, what, what, the, what the obstacles might be to uh, effective implementation. So without further ado, this is the, the, the format I'm going to from. Now one thing I would say at the start is it's, I don't think it's any secret that I'm pretty sympathetic to financial fair play. And uh, independent of that, I also do some work for UEFA's education department. So if anybody feels that that colours my judgement, it's out there now. So I mean, I, I think we should declare whatever links we have. But the, the reality is that we at Burtbeck have been interested in this idea of financial fair play going back as far as the, uh, the, the football task force, if anybody can remember that far back, 1989 I think it was, um, when the Labour government facilitated an inquiry into English football because there was a concern at the time, it was mainly to do actually at that time that ticket prices were getting too expensive and the, the traditional farm was being priced out. But one of the interesting things that there were two split reports at that point. That one of them was the majority report, which was everybody except the FA, the Football League, and the Premier League. He said, actually, we need to have some kind of financial regulation. It was a Football Audit Commission, I think they call it, FAC. Because even at that point, there were, there were obvious signs, particularly in the lower leagues, that the losses, the overheating losses, were causing problems for clubs. And myself and my colleague, Dr. Jeff Walters, through a number of inquiries, first of all, to the House of Commons Football, Committee, and then in 2011 to the House of Commons Culture, Media and Sport Committee. I mean, basically we submitted evidence and the basic gist of it was, look, the, the revenues in English football are extraordinary. They keep on increasing year on year, but so do the losses. And our view was then and continues to be now that this is completely unsustainable, that at some point it's going to cause a problem and you need to have a regulatory response to that. And we also, as I, I talk about in the very last slide, in the US, they already have financial fair play. In fact, they've always, they don't call it that, but that's what they've got. And they've had it right from the very beginning of American sports. And in fact, 
you know, what all we really, the, my central thesis is that what FFP actually is, is both in its UEFA guise through their leadership initially and then subsequently here in England with the Football League and the Premier League, is simply an acknowledgement that a lot of what the Americans have did at the very beginning in terms of trying to control salaries and redistribute income has just made good sense in the context of the peculiar economics of uh, professional sports leagues, to quote the famous Walter Neal paper. So I'll talk a little bit about the origins of FFP. I'll say what, I'll talk about it, why we need it in, in England. I'll go through three cases if I have time and then I'll conclude. Now, what is the origins of uh, FFP? Well, it, it comes out of the club licensing system initially, um, which UEFA introduced. And the context of that was that you met 10 or so years ago, there was real concern in Europe that it wasn't just to do Real Madrid, but it crystallized around this, was that there were certain clubs in Europe and the resources were so extraordinary that actually they could turn the Champions League into uh, basically the richest man wins. And of course, the other point about this was that, you know, Real Madrid, uh, as we now know, um, did an extraordinary property deal with the Madrid City Council which um, at various times the European Commission has threatened to investigate, but I think they're actually going to do now. And if, you know, if you see the way the football is going in Spain, it's clear that there was a huge public subsidy to many Spanish, to Spanish clubs. And we, we see the particular case of Valencia, where uh, the city, the, the regional authority, actually guaranteed the debt to, to, to a bank that they had. So there was, there was concern about this today. It, would under, it was going to undermine the integrity of the competition. Um, and also there was going to be wider knock-on effects. And it's useful to go to the actual quote from Lars Krilser Olsen, um, who was the CEO of UF at the time. I'll just read it out because, I mean, it's quite interesting. It's 10 years ago. I think, it, in my view, it's quite far-sighted. He says, to many sides, too many teams are not planning for the long-term future of the club. I think only about the very immediate outlook. There are clubs who have in the past indulged what it can, can almost be called financial doping. They bought players but not paid their debts, or even worse in some cases, their player salaries, which was, it's an interesting observation if you think about it in a different context. Under our new club license system, clubs will have to prove to the National Association that they have sound finances if they're going to play in European competition. We're determined to be firm about this. In future, clubs will not be allowed to have significant debts to other clubs, players, related parties, and they will have an independent audit statement to show that. Now, they introduced the license system. Now, clearly, um, the license system did not have as immediate an effect as was maybe anticipated. I mean, it's, and, well, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll explain a little bit more about that. Now, and, that, and that's basically the, uh, out of that in 2009, we got the Financial Fair Play Initiative. And I mean, I'm not going to go into the detail of this, but in essence, what it means is that clubs won't, uh, who want to play in UEFA competitions going forward um, will not be able to spend more than a certain proportion of income on player-related expense. But what's exempted is infrastructure costs, expenditure on stadia, youth development and community development. I'll come back to that, why that's the case. Now, let's just take a, note, a look at uh, European football in 2011 from the latest UEFA benchmarking report. So it's a really, it's really, it says a lot about the financial strength of the industry that we're in the worst recession since the 1930s, and yet it continues to increase revenue. These figures are for revenues in the, in the 53 top divisions in UEFA's 53 members. But one thing that we notice immediately is that um, the teams are spending a lot more money on transfers than they are on their stadia and other related fixed assets and on their wages. 
So that, that tells you something. You know, basically that tells you that there is, not to, I'm not wishing to be too dramatic about it, but there's a bit of a ticking time bomb there is in the terms of infrastructure. I mean, in England we're quite well equipped for stadia, but you know, it's worth remembering that the reason why British stadia modernized was because the government forced football to modernize after the Hillsborough disaster. And in fact, they got a subsidy of 25% of capital costs over the, uh, the, the, the 1992-1997 period from a, from a levy on, on gambling on the pools. So the first implication of this is that um, football clubs in Europe are, are spending the revenue on players, not on their facilities. And we can see that also that the, the, the labour spending is, is way out, it, it's, it's way ahead of, of, the increase is way ahead of what the, um, the revenues are. And also the, the employee in net transport costs is 71% of, of total revenues, which I think Deloitte say 60% is, is a sort of tolerable level, don't they? And there's a 1.7 billion loss in 2011 alone. So, you know, as myself and Jeff said to the House of Commons Committee, I mean, we don't claim to be geniuses, but if you're losing that kind of money every year for 15 years, I, I, I'm sorry. I don't care how brilliant a financier you are, that's a problem, that's a big problem. Particularly when a core part of your business is your physical infrastructure, your stadium business. And we've no, from we know from the stats that, that the expenditure on that is not at the level that it should be in order to maintain your stadium, assuming that all the stadia across Europe were modernized anyway. Now one of the, one of the points that, that UEFA note about the, since the introduction of FFP is that actually there's been an improvement in the level, uh, the, 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 in the terms of overdue transfer and employee payables because of the penalties that have been introduced. Now, what's often asked is, I mean, you know, we live in a, in a, in a, a world which it continues to disappoint, doesn't it really, in so many ways, what can I say? Philosophical point in the middle of it. And we, we're in a world where um, we've just seen a complete meltdown in the financial system, in the banking system, a total failure, I don't think I'm exaggerating, in regulation of banking. So I don't think it would be unreasonable to then say, well, if banking can't be regulated properly, what hope for football? But I would say to be fair to, to, to the FS system, you know, they have penalized clubs. This is before FFP has really come in, in, in any, to any significant degree. This is just to do with not allowing clubs to compete in their competitions that have been bankrupt, which haven't met the basic financial criteria. And for example, last season, uh, there were six clubs excluded, including Rangers, we know, because they went into financial administration, but also um, Besiktas. I mean, there's some big names in there. So what the UEFA people argue is that what they've done over a 10-year period with the introduction of club licensing is that they slowly have improved the quality of the financial information that has to be provided to them as part of the club licensing and now the financial fair play process. And over time, they actually have made some hard decisions and they have excluded some major clubs. And their argument is, and I'm just now repeating their argument, they say that they're doing this because they, 10 years ago, they could see the way it was going and they felt that there had to be some action. I make that point um, because obviously later on we, we'll probably have quite a lively debate about whether or not they will have the political will to force this through. 
And their position is, yes, we will, and here's, here's examples of it. Um, and the other thing they've done is they, they've actually withheld um, uh, payments uh, or, or uh, prize money. I think it was in September last year, they, they withheld prize money from 23 clubs because they were behind in their payments to other football uh, parties. And a few months later, they were able to release the, the payments to, to 16 of these clubs because surprise, surprise, when they, when they realized they weren't going to get their prize money, they suddenly found the money to pay the people they should have paid in the first place. Now, of course, what this tells you is, of course, is that there's a certain London Council area that I lived in where 10 years ago, uh, the council tax payment was 50%. Well, now it's 95%, and the reason is because they started collecting it. You know, I mean, <laughs> the thing about regulation is, is that people don't believe you're serious. So again, the UEFA guys argue that, um, well, we have measures available to us. Withholding uh, uh, um, prize money is one, and we have applied it in a limited way at the outset of this financial pay process, and there has been a positive response. Now, why financial fair play in England? This is, I'm going to leave the detail of the, the, the main part of FFP to the two guys, and I'll come in during the discussion. Now, people like myself who, you know, have been looking at this area for 15 years, I mean, right up until 2011, the argument of the PL was we don't really need uh, aggressive uh, financial regulation. Less so from the, the, the Football League, but that was generally their argument that, you know, things were fine. We don't, you know, we do, we, there had been introduction of certain measures. For example, they, you know, they had to bring in the 10-point and the 9-point penalties for clubs going into insolvency because of Leicester's abuse of the insolvency process. But by and large, that was a bit. Now they've suddenly changed. Why is that? Why have they changed? Now, before I get into that, I'll speed up. Um, you know, I'm not here to attack English football. Which has many, you know, which has been phenomenally successful when you think about where it was in the 1980s. Highest revenues in Europe, biggest TV deals, full stadiums, enormous attendance at the Football League, three divisions, not just at the PL level. Problem is, it doesn't make any money. Chronically loss making. Now, some of esteemed colleagues of mine have argued that that doesn't matter because as long as there's another rich oligarch along in, 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 in you know, it's fine. But the trouble with it is it's not fine. Because what happens is, where you do not, as the Americans realized at the very, very beginning when they were forming their own leagues, if you allow clubs to borrow as much money as they like, to invest as much money as they like from their investors, what you get, without any restraints on labor spending, what you get is, because you, you get an arms race for talent. So the, the, the players benefit. Our, my students have seen this loads of times. This is from the financial board, not the latest one, the previous one. It'll be exactly the same in this one. And typically, the more you spend, um, the more likely you are to be successful. Now, it tells you a lot that Ferguson didn't spend as much, uh, Sir Alex, I should say, did not spend as much as, as uh, Man City and Chelsea, and he still won the league. So at the margins, a great manager can make a difference. But basically, that's the relationship. So they all know that. Everybody knows that. And the people who particularly know it are the guys who are trying to get into the Premier League from the Championship. Now, again, this is not the latest Deloitte, um, but the figures will be pretty, I, 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 will be the same. The Premier League in, in 10, 11 lost three, the 380 million they lost. But look how much the, the Championship clubs lost, 189 million on turnover of 423 million. 
I mean, am I missing something here? Is that sustainable in the middle of the worst recession since the 30s? And these are the bankruptcies. I mean, I know that Coventry went into administration. Does, does anybody else? What are other clubs are in administration at the moment? Hard. Well, that's, a, that's a, another extraordinary story of uh, financial, I don't know what you could call it. But anyway, we could see here that in, in the period of the most extraordinary expansion in revenues in English football, nearly 60 clubs have been in, a, in bankruptcy. That's over half. Now, this, this is all publicly available information that the fine gentlemen from Deloitte have put together for us. And the reason why we have the big spike here, of course, is that when ITV put their toe in the water for the, um, the, the, uh, the digital platform, ITV Digital, for the, for the three divisions of the Football League, a lot of clubs uh, they did a three-year deal, and a lot of clubs in the Football League spent all the money in the first year. And then when the ITV parent company pulled the plug on ITV Digital, and refused to pay the other two years. Well, they had no money, did they? So they went bust. And see, that tells you how, that's what happens. I mean, there's a famous uh, academic, Peter Sloan, who describes this as utility maximization. And what happens in sport is that normally level-headed business people prioritize uh, sporting success over, over, over normal business criteria, and they spend more than they should. And the result is they either spend their own money in the club, say, solvent, or they, they spend it until they go bankrupt, in which case, famously, in the Portsmouth case, the taxpayer picks up a bill for, I think it was 70 million, wasn't it? So the point is that, that it's, uh, bankruptcy in football is not a victimless crime. It is not a victim. It's very, very important to emphasize this point. Real people lose money, lose their jobs. And also, the league becomes a procession, ultimately. Now, I'm, going to, I'm just going to play this. This is Greg Clark, former CEO of Cable and Wireless at, at FTSE 100 Company. This is, this is him explaining in one minute, a lot more succinctly than I do, why they introduced financial fair play in the Football League. Well, two years ago, the Football League board decided to get on the front foot, looking at what the future would look like and how we would deal with it. It became very clear when we looked at the numbers and some financial forecasts that uh, we were heading for a train wreck, uh, 1.5 to 2 billion of total debt in the Football League. And unless we put extremely effective cost controls in place, we'd have lots of football clubs going out of business. And the clubs have got together to come up with a set of rules which will reduce our funding costs going forward and make financial stability available to all football clubs. And how many clubs are we talking? How many clubs do you think might have gone out of business had you not introduced these rules? Well, we certainly they could have been looking at losing, you know, to administration, you know, maybe five, six, seven clubs a season, uh, looking at some of the forecasts we've seen. And some of those wouldn't have survived. They would have gone into liquidation and the clubs would have disappeared. I mean, we can see what's happening at Portsmouth, where it's nip and tuck whether that club will survive. And that's a function of spending too much money over too long a period and having a succession of owners, which we're trying to stop. So you don't think there'll be a, a two, three-tier league championship? I don't think so. I think you're always going to get huge clubs uh, in the Premier League competing for global talent uh, and playing in the Champions League. Uh, however, there is a, a series of clubs that move between the Championship and the Premier League on a, on a regular basis, whether it's yearly or five-yearly or ten-yearly. And what we need to do is to make sure that those clubs coming down to the Championship find a competitive division in which they can prosper financially, compete for promotion but not be insured it. League guys came to the conclusion loss making is a problem, actually. It, you know, and what I would say is they came to the same conclusion that the UEFA guys came to 10 years earlier. 
So I think my own view is a central point about FFP. It just so happens that UEFA have been the leaders in Europe, but actually, you know, I think there's been a confluence. It's, you know, it's there. They, they've led the project, but actually there's a lot of different parties have come to the same conclusion independently. I mean, you wouldn't have financial fair play if the European Clubs Association, for example, hadn't supported it as well. I, I think it's to miss on the debate, to make the debate about what UEFA does or doesn't do, in my own view, I think um, doesn't actually credit it with the, with the broader context with which it's in. So anyway, very, very briefly, um, West Ham, why do they vote for David Gold? It's a restraint on... Now, the, 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 the Premier League uh, FAP is obviously a lot more lenient than, than the one that you have, but they introduced it because we've got restraint. That's the important thing. What's driving the whole thing is we've got to avoid another Portsmouth, another collapse, because obviously when a club collapses, it completely devalues the competition as well. Um, now, let's just go briefly look at the wonderful story of, of Coventry, um, who have just been bought out by a group of former directors. Um, they have a temporary transfer embargo imposed on them by the Football League, but the club, uh, uh, for failing to file their accounts on time, they say, as part of the account submission process, we've been able to show committed funding out for the next financial year. There's no problem. The embargo is lifted in June 2012. Nine months later, they go bust. They won't pay a lot of creditors. They have 10 points deducted, which means that undermines the credibility of the, of the championship because there's a team where, 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 where its results are determined not just by sporting results, but by financial. They haven't paid their stadium owners 1.3 million. And then, of course, what emerges, as always emerges in football, there's always some rich guy over the corner with a lot of money who's interested. That, that's the level of sophistication. You know, that's the solution. Find another rich guy to plug the hole and spend his money. They're eventually bought out in, a, in an extraordinary saga, which I won't go into through here, with, by, by current directors. Let's look at Bury. 24th of December, Bury announces to be placed under a transfer embargo by the Football League, again as part of the, the, the financial fair play regs but they stayed they're not in difficulty. It's because they had to get a short-term loan from the Professional Football Association, PFA, to play player, player uh, salaries. Direct quote, all businesses experience cash flow problems and we're no different than anyone else. December is traditionally not a brilliant month for attendances. Now, what I thought about that was, that's the holiday period. Do you know Spinal Tap, the movie, where the Boston gigs are cancelled, the manager said, don't worry, guys, it's not a big student town. I mean, that's what I thought when I heard that. I mean, since when was Christmas not a good time for attendances? Anyway, this is a very long quote, but by April, Barry FC has been experiencing financial difficulties all season. Really, that wasn't what you were saying four months ago. We're currently in a transfer embargo imposed by the Football League because we are quickly running out of money by trying short-term fixes. Their words, not mine. There is no sustainable business model in this club. Um, Eventually, they're bailed out by a new consortium. But the question is, why were Bury allowed to buy clubs when they were chronically indebted? You know, what kind of a financial regulatory system allowed these people to buy assets from other people when they clearly couldn't even fund their cash flow? Also, what about the clubs in that division who are running a balanced book and trying to only buy players that they sustain? Bury are also achieving 
an unfair sporting advantage in that context. So there's two problems here. One, there's a problem of financial integrity with the people that they're, they're buying from and the people that they're buying from, yeah, that they can't afford these transactions. And the second is that it undermines the sporting integrity of the competition because it gives them an unfair competitive advantage over the teams that are running a sensible balanced budget. Swindon. Um, they're going for promotion. Paulo de Cano is the manager. A transfer ban is imposed on them because they exceed the 65% of turnover ratio set quite sensibly, in my view, by the Football League. Paulo doesn't like it. He then spends the following month going onto the local media, attacking his own employers for their lack of ambition, which means, why are you not spending your money to help me get the club promoted? Well, Paulo is not going to spend his own money here. I think at one point he offered, I don't know, a normal amount, but um, the owner uh, puts a bit of money in, the, 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 um, the ban is lifted temporarily. Eventually the guy says, I can't sustain it, and he sells the club to a new set of investors because the alternative was bankruptcy. Now, I don't know the, the, who the people are involved in, but on the surface it looks like quite a noble bit of transaction, actually. Um, now, what the, the, the news throws into stark relief just how dire Swindon Town's finances are and why the Football League's ban on the engaging and transfer activity made clear absolute sense. But clearly there was a major question mark of the club's ability to pay for the cost of these transfers going forward and to allow such transfers might have tipped the club into bankruptcy. I mean, this is, this is you know, well. Well, let's just deal with Paulo de Cano here before we move on. Paulo de Cano is the manager of this club. I'm assuming, right, that he knows what the financial envelope he's working within, right? And, and he is publicly pressurizing his owner to spend more money at a point when this club is teetering on the brink of insolvency, right? In doing so, he is behaving in the classic football ma uh, manager fashion. In other words, high risk with other people's money to achieve sporting success without, on the face of it, allowing enough consideration for what the wider consequences are likely to be. Now, bear in mind that Swindon are going for promotion at this point. So I say again, it's also a problem for supporting integrity. The other teams in that division are going for um, uh, you know, uh, promotion and are trying to run a sensible budget. They are being unfairly competed with. And let's go back to why we have a 10-point penalty for insolvency. Because less went bankrupt, didn't pay the creditors, came back the next season free of debt, got promoted to the Premier League, and Nottingham Forest, who ran a reasonably sensible budget, did not. And all the football clubs agreed that this was an outrageous uh, uh, um, abuse of the, of the insolvency process, and that's why, they brought, that's why they started the first step in this financial regulation process. Um, a second transfer embargo was imposed in March. Pa uh, Paolo de Cano leaves accusing the club of broken promises. I mean, what, spend money that they didn't have? Come on. In reality, the reason they left because when a combination of the application of the football financial fair play rules and success's own unwillingness to continue to shoulder significant financial losses benefits in itself in strict controls and player transfer and wage expenditure, he opted to leave. Now, what I would say is that the, the, the application of the Football League financial fair play rules here to try to keep 
a, 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 a reasonably sensible ratio between expenditure and wages versus turnover, right? What that did was it stopped um, Swindon spending money that they didn't have, right? And making up debts that they may not be able to meet in the future. So in other words, it, met, it helped it to meet its responsibility to wider financial stakeholders, and it also stopped them getting an unfair uh, sporting advantage against other teams that were, they were fighting for promotion. And in May 2013, as a measure of just how difficult the situation they're in, they, they have the player budget after they lose out in the playoffs. Now, just, just I mean, I have a reputation for being slightly theatrical. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a style I've had to adapt teaching mature students over the years when people come in after the day's work and you have to keep them, um, to keep their attention. But, I mean, you know, in the football area sometimes, you know, you, you don't have to be theatrical because the facts should speak for themselves. It has always wang solicitors, city solicitors. This is their evidence to the 2011 football governance inquiry by the House of Commons, uh, Culture, Media, Sports Committee. The practice of using cash set aside for the Humanities, Revenue and Customs Tax Authorities as working capital for, the cl for clubs it was widespread. In any other industry, this is an incredibly serious offence that typically leads quickly to a winding up petition and personal consequences for those involved. This seems to be relatively widespread practice in football. The fact that this practice is widespread in football is evidence of the parallel universe. Now, these are city lawyers talking here. That has long surrounded the operation of a football club in this country. Many clubs appear to operate outside the accepted commercial and legal boundaries that other businesses must adhere to. The Football League woke up to this in 2011. The Premier League have decided that's an issue now, and UEFA, for their own reasons, 10 years ago. To myself and to Jeff, I think this was inevitable. Anybody looking at this over a 10-year period, I was very heavily involved in supporters direct fan co-ops. You could see it there whenever the supporter trust took over a club when nobody else was prepared to buy it. Conclusions. You know, financial fair play, in my view, it's just simply a recognition that not even the sport industry can make losses indefinitely without some form of regulatory response. You know, you just can't keep losing all the time, money all the time. Somebody has to pay. And in sport, the, the, it, it, when things have gone well, it's a rich owner. And when it's not, it's a taxpayer, it's a whole range of creditors, et cetera, et cetera. And there's the added problem in sport that if you allow people to achieve the sporting success through reckless financial behavior, you undermine the integrity of the competition. Secondly, it's not even that novel. I mean, people talk about financial fair play as if it's sort of some kind of thing, um, you know, that UEFA have come up with this sort of Machiavellian plot to constrain clubs like Manchester City um, from doing what you know is, is their you know their their birthright or whatever, all the, all that's happened in my view is they've taken the the American sports regulatory system, you know, and they've adapted it for a promotion and relegation system, and they've it's just, and, and and they've adapted it in a way that they don't have to bring in a hard salary cap. Finally. Um, FFP, I think, is as much about encouraging the development of sustainable football clubs as it is about punishing overspending. Because if you go back to this, the very last point I'll make, um, you know, the reason why there are the exemptions there is because if you're spending all your money on players, you're not investing in your stadium infrastructure. And 
you know, football has to, you know, has to be in a position to be able to reinvest in its, in its infrastructure. And that's not going to happen unless some kind of mechanism is, is introduced which provides an incentive for this kind of investment and also puts a cap on how much they spend on the salary. So I would acknowledge that that is a fairly partisan presentation. All I would say is, is that it's what myself and Jeff have been saying for the best part of 10 years. It's a lot to pack into, well, 20 minutes is now longer. Um, but never mind, you take as long as you like. And um, hopefully that sets the scene. Thanks very much. Okay, right, so about me. So I'm, I'm Ed Thompson. I'm on the, the website financialfairplay.co.uk. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm a financial projects manager working for a, a large global bank. I've done loads of pieces for, um, for it, uh, the national press and, and uh, been mentioned in the press and done magazine articles and uh, interviewed on BBC Radio. Uh, I was described by The Independent on Sunday as one of the country's leading analysts of UEFA's financial fair play regulations, which was very nice, but actually it's a fairly small pool, to be honest. Uh, okay, so what I'm going to do in, in, in my slot, actually, is, is going to give you quite a lot of information, so um, apologies if, if it's information overload, but, uh, but uh, yeah, but there's quite a lot to go through, even so, because um, essentially what's happened is three years ago, there were no financial uh, constraint regulations across uh, English football or across European football. Nothing. I mean, as long as the club didn't go into administration, you could spend what you like, you could lose as much money as you like. It really made no odds. But now, things have changed. The, the season, 2013-2014, was an absolute watershed for financial constraints because for the very first time, there are financial constraints that operate across all of English football. So that's League Two, League One, the Championship, the Premier League, and, and UEFA. And for the first time, if clubs in the 2013-14 season overspend then they will be punished. It's a situation that's never happened before, and it's a massive change in actually a very short period of time. Okay, so going on to that, what I want to do now, when I said there's a lot of information overload, I want to try something now to go through a slide that I've tried to produce, which is kind of a, bit, a little bit work in progress, which shows the whole uh, blanket of financial fair play regulations that's in place across England and UEFA. And the reason I've done that is because actually, though I say it's a blanket, it's actually not. It, it's more like a patchwork. Because what's happened is, in order to introduce the financial fair play rules or, or financial constraints, you need the approval of all, the, uh, of all the, the league teams. So in each and every division, the league teams have voted for financial constraints. But the interesting point there is, you know, what are you voting for, really? Everybody understands that uh, Portsmouth is a bad scenario. But what is it about Portsmouth you don't like? Is it, is it the fact that they spent too much on wages? Was it the fact that they, their owner didn't stick in equity into the club? You know, what was it? That there's, and what's happened with the financial fair, the, the, the regulations is that there's more than one way to skin a cat. And across every single uh, one of the football leagues and divisions, that they've done it slightly differently, which is in itself quite interesting. Um, and where there is an, an issue is that the, the overlap between the rules and the regulations isn't particularly good in terms of all, it's like all patchworks. It's the stitching between them that doesn't necessarily work quite so well. So what I want to do is, is let's see if I crash and burn with this, guys. I'm going to go quite quickly on this next bit. But what it is, is that it's press, what you need to do, I've got my, my laser pen, you need to follow the dot, I think, to try and stay on, on, on track here with where we are. What I've got here is all the, there's all the uh, various uh, divisions, UEFA down to League 1 and 2, 
And here's the various kind of ways that they could control it. Is it maximum permitted loss? Is it wage restriction? Or what is it? And actually, it's quite interesting when you look at this because everybody's chosen something different. So if you look at League One and, one and Two, well, they, they haven't gone for any, any uh, permitted loss piece. They've just gone for a, a wage restriction. So it's restricting the spend on turnover, uh, restricting the spend on wages as a percentage of turnover. The, the, the rationale being that wages is your biggest single uh, expense. So if we can control wages, then everything else will follow. So that's what they've gone for. And what they've also gone for here is, is a way that it's monitored. Uh, it's monitored in the Football League by monthly projections. They produce projections at the start of the season and then kind of interactive process throughout. And what happens is that they um, project how much they're going to spend on their wages and the, the Football League will then sanction whether or not they can spend any extra money. And it's a very kind of proactive approach because, um, well, take uh, Orient, for example. Orient had a scenario where they were... Uh, they've got a, a lucrative cup tie coming up against Everton. And so what they did, the, the, the CEO explained that what they did is when they put in their projection, they were able to say, actually, we're getting a few, some more money in the next, next month or so, so we want to sign a new player and up our wages. And it was then sanctioned by the Football League. And that's the beauty of this kind of like monthly projection kind of interactive, proactive approach, you know. Um, and the sanction that they have in place here in, in Leagues 1 and 2, it's, it's a transfer ban. And as we saw, uh, Swindon had the honour of the very first transfer ban. And, and this is actually already in place. This season that we've just, just gone, that's the first season that there's been, um, you know, punishments in place, and it's been transfer bans. Okay, so what about the Championship? Now, the Championship, I feel quite sorry for the Championship because they need to keep one eye on, what's on the rules that are going on down here. And also, they need to look up what's going on in the Premier League and UEFA. Um, in the Championship, again, for this season... It's the first time that they're going to have spending constraints when they're going to get punished if they break the rules. And what have they gone for? Well, they've actually gone for something different. They've gone for maximum permitted loss approach in the championship. And so here it is, 2013-14, if a club spends more than, uh, if a club loses more than £10 million in this coming season, then they will be punished. However, although I said it's uh, £10 million, actually it's not. Um, if you look under here, it's, it's uh, maximum loss if the owner doesn't inject equity. So what they've done in the championship, they say, well, actually, it's a fundamental behind all the financial fair play rules that what we don't want to happen is, is that the debts of the club will continue to grow. So even if we permit there to be uh, an acceptable level of loss, actually, we really need to make sure that the, the losses don't grow appreciably. So we need the owner to inject equity. Right? So just in terms of what that means, because it might not you know, be common parlance to everybody, but... Um, the idea of injecting equity is where the owner effectively buys shares in the club. So if an owner might own 100% in, in, in a club, you know, owns 100% of the shares, what would then happen is that the club would create some new shares, which the owner would then be obliged to buy. So in effect, the money comes out of the owner's pocket into the club, and all the owner gets back in return is some more shares. Well, they already had 100% of the shares, so really it's just more bits of paper. It doesn't really make a great deal of difference. The club gains because the club gets the equity from the owner, uh, and that then stops the, uh, the bank overdraft growing, and it also stops you know, them needing to go out for loans or whatever. So that's where the kind of equity requirement comes in. And so the requirement in, in the championship says, if the owner isn't willing to stick his hand in his pocket and buy the shares and put the money into the club, you can only lose in this season coming up £4 million, which actually isn't very much at all. And the downside for an owner in, in actually sticking equity into the club is that they may never get their money back because all they're doing is just it's going out of their pocket. They're physically saying goodbye to it, and they will only ever get their money back if the club, if they sell the club at a profit, or if the club uh, reports some kind of profit and then pay out the money via a dividend. So, you know, really, a lot of owners aren't going to want to do that. So, you know, potentially some of the owners might actually 
uh, stick, you know, the limit might only be ten, four million pounds in this coming season. And what's also interesting in the championship is their approach, which is to say, actually, we're going to look at maximum permitted loss over just the one season. Now, you know, what they could have done, which is what they've done in UEFA and in, in the Premier League, when we come on to that, is they could have said, well, actually, we're looking at it over a number of seasons. And in many ways, looking at it over a number of seasons makes more sense. Because if the club were to sell a player, as quite often happens in the championship, you sell a player for quite a lot of money and you can then bank the cash. Actually, in the championship, unless they're really kind of clever about the way that they bank the receipts, which you know, I think they struggle to do, to be honest, the money is just comes in in that one season. Yeah, they sell it in that one season. That's great in that season. You're not going to make a loss. Next season, you're kind of back to as you were. Um, so that's kind of going to be interesting to see if some clubs kind of mess, you know, just sort of stagger the kind of uh, the, 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 the receipts. Though I'm struggling to work out exactly how they can do it, but perhaps they will. Uh, wage restrictions. There's no wage restrictions in the championship. They decided not to go for that approach at all. How is it monitored? Well, it's monitored by annual accounts. Now, the, the thing about annual accounts is they're completely retrospective. Um, that they really report on how the club has done in the past. So whereas, you know, we've got this scenario in the Football League where they're kind of doing monthly projections and they're kind of being proactive, it's kind of like, you know, the bus has already gone off, you know, in terms of the championship. So, you know, it, it's all very retrospective. So what they'll do, over the 2013-14 season, that's the season that's coming, at the end of the season, they'll produce accounts. Now, the accounting period end, usually it's kind of end of May, end of June for, for most football clubs. So... And that will be, you know, and so they'll produce the accounts on looking at whether or not they've made a maximum, you know, how much loss or whatever they've made. But then it's going to be another kind of six months before they've kind of got the accounts together, got them through the auditing process and got them up to the Football League. And then what will happen is they'll go to the Football League, those accounts, for this season that's coming in December 2014. And the Football League will look at them and, and then basically, if they've overspent, they'll impose a transfer ban on the club. And that transfer ban will stay in place until the club, either next post... Uh, uh, accounts that are within the, within the parameters or are able to demonstrate via a projection that they will be uh, able to meet it in future years. You know, so you could have a transfer in place for quite some time. Uh, there's also a fine bit if clubs overspend in order to try and get out of the Premier, out of the Championship. And I'll come on to a practical example of that in a second because that's really, really interesting. Okay, so the Premier League. Now, in Premier League, this is brand new as well for this season, so they're going to have some spending constraints. Um, they've gone for a different approach. Their approach is to say that you can move maximum permitted loss, which is 105 million over three seasons, which is a lot of money. You know, actually, other than, um, you know, in fact, you know, it's not really going to, I can't see many clubs failing on, on, on that overspending, to be honest. Particularly as there's the new TV deal that kicks in this year, you see, which kind of increases income by about 25, 30 million per club, probably. Um, but what they've done as well, they've, they've gone for the same kind of concept that actually, although it's 105 million, actually it's not really. If the owner doesn't stick their hand in the pocket and stick in equity, it's only going to be 15 million pounds over the three seasons. Um, and that is interesting because that's not very much. You know, it's 5 million pounds a season. And, and why that is particularly interesting is some of the clubs that the, um, uh, Aston Villa and Sunderland are particularly good examples of that. They don't have incredibly wealthy oligarchs or, or sheikhs who regularly put the money into the club. So, they are going to be capped, you know, the, the, here in effect. You know, they really don't want to, I don't think, be stick, putting, converting debt into e equity because historically that's not what they've done. You know, if you look at Aston Villa's accounts, it's in debt. You know, if you look at Sunderland's, it's in debt. I mean, he's put some money into Sunderland, in fairness. Um, so anyway, so that's, that's the cap there. Uh, wage restrictions then. In the Premier League, they've kind of gone for a complete mixed bag. They've basically got every single approach that you could possibly get and put it all in one, which is quite interesting. They've gone for a wage restriction as well in the Premier League. And what they've said is, if your wage restrictions are below £52 million per annum, 
well, then you can uplift it to £52 million in this, in this coming season. Um, so actually, there's probably about six clubs, probably, that have wages below £52 million. You know, the newly promoted clubs, uh, the last accounts that were published for Swansea were uh, about £35 million, just to give you some kind of feel. So, you know, most clubs are kind of going to be above that. But if you're below, if you're a newly promoted club, you can whack your wages up straight away to that. But you do, of course, need to be mindful of not making a loss. Okay, so uh, there's another wage cap thing that happens, which is that uh, clubs that have wages over the 52 million, which is the most of the clubs, they are now, um, they've now got a cap on how much they can increase their wages by each year. It's now four million pounds each year. It, it's, it's in line with the new TV deal. Um, so for the, for the duration of the new TV deal, it's four million pounds maximum per year, but also they couldn't uplift their wages by, if they do a new uh, sponsorship deal, for example, they can increase it by the four million pounds plus the uplift from their sponsorship deal. That's what's happening there. So they've gone for that approach. How is it monitored? Well, it's monitored by annual accounts, so it is retrospective. However, it's also proactive. And this is one of the things that, if you, when you speak to the guys in the Football League, they're really quite proud of, and it is actually very good, is that they um, insist that clubs project forward. So when they produce their accounts for this, this next year that's coming up, the 2013-14 season, they're going to have to produce accounts for the, follow, the, the three seasons after that. And what, they, what the Football League has said is, if you are projecting a loss in that season, in those future years, what you then need to do is you then need to actually mortgage some assets to cover the amount that you're going to lose. You know, we all know what happens at Portsmouth, where they, or, you know, Snorris, where the owner runs out of cash, and they've got an infrastructure where the club has to spend lots of money. Here, they're trying to uh, control that by telling the clubs that if you're projecting a loss, you actually need to either put your money into some kind of protected escrow account or actually mortgage the cash completely. So it is a combination of projections and annual accounts. So... Um, sanctions then, sanctions, well, they haven't really just did, uh, announced what they're going to be. They, they've said there's going to be points deductions, definitely. We don't know what those other sanctions are yet. Uh, first punishments, well, actually, that's to be confirmed, to be honest. I said, I expect that in December 2014, they'd have the first accounts from the very first season when the new rules kick in. And so we'll probably see then there would be some kind of punishments, potentially for clubs that have overspending in terms of wages. So they've increased their wages by more than £4 million a year, potentially, although be pretty stupid to do that, but perhaps they would. Um, and, uh, you know, and equity breaches, so if they're not, you know, basically if they're not sticking the money into the, into the club to, in line with future projections. So that's when that could happen. And then probably by December 16, 2016, we'd actually have uh, clubs assessed against whether or not they've lost their 105 million over three seasons. And, you know, I can't really see that happening, to be honest, because it's such a, you know, a, a generous target. Okay, so Moving on then to, the, to UEFA, and I guess you're most, mostly familiar with that. Well, actually, we've already had the first two seasons of the, 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 um, the first two periods that are going to be monitored. We're now in the third one. So, so actually, over those three seasons, the two seasons that have just been and this one that's coming, 45 million euros is, in, euros is the maximum over those three seasons. As you can see, you know, compare 45 million euros to, you know, 105 million. You know, it's, complete, it's a completely different figure. It's much lower. But the thing about the UEFA competitions are... Actually, you don't need to, com to um, comply with the UEFA rules. The way it works is that clubs apply for a license in advance. So uh, when this next season kicks off, the clubs will apply for a license. And, you know, hope and, and there'll be a kind of, UEFA will look at the accounts and all this sort of stuff. And then, you know, by May time, April, May time, UEFA will actually tell them whether they've got a license or not. But the bizarre thing there is a lot of clubs, say like Aston Villa, they apply for a license every year even though actually, you know, they're never going to need one because they never actually get the, you know, requisite points or win the Cups in order to qualify. So that's kind of what happens there. Um, so, what was I saying here? Yeah, so, uh, so that's, that's what's happening there. The maximum permitted loss if the owner doesn't inject equity. It's really, really tight.
tonight in the, for, the, for the UEFA competitions. So, you know, there is a theory that some clubs might actually not apply for UEFA competitions this year, like your Aston Villas or your Sunderlands, because the owner will actually need to put in equity this year. He's going to have to, to cover, to cover the equity. In fact, he's going to have to, to cover the two seasons that's just finished, you know, during that period, he's going to have to put, his equity, put the equity in. So, it's, it's just going to be quite interesting to see whether clubs do, do, do all apply to go into UEFA competitions. The only unfortunate bit is there is we'll probably never know, because actually they don't tell you. Um, we know that a, a couple of years ago, one team didn't apply. We don't even know who that is. It, it was probably Blackburn, because they had audit issues with their accounts, but, but we don't know. So, you know, this bizarre scenario is, you, you know, you could turn up watching your club, Aston Villa, taking part in the, in the FA Cup season in, in January, whatever. And actually, it, it might turn out that even if they win the competition, they're not going to be allowed in Europe, but actually you don't know, which is a bit weird. Um, is there a wages restriction in UEFA? No, it's all done on this uh, maximum permitted loss. Overspend is done, it's retrospectively, of course, it's just done by an annual accounts. So that's the way that they monitor it. Sanctions, there's nine sanctions in Europe. Um, it, there's, it ranges from a, from a, a ban, uh, from a warning to a ban. And what, what basically will happen is, if a club have overspent, they will get one of the punishments. And it could be a warning, we just don't know. I mean, one of the things, if, as we all know, we don't actually know what punishments are going to come, uh, going to be dished out. Uh, first punishment dates, well, actually, the first punishment dates for overspending are actually going to be probably May, April, May 2014, probably, and I know Daniel's going to touch on this later, and that would relate, actually, not to this season that's just come. That, those punishments would relate to overspending in the, the two seasons, seasons that we've just had, the very first two periods that are covered by the monitoring period. hope that makes sense. Um, I think it's, it's quite ambitious slide to get it all on one go. Uh, right, okay, so what I'm going to do now, this, I really like this piece. If anybody's ever seen my sites, the bits I, I like doing are, are uh, financial projections. I like doing them because actually I'm not a journalist, and actually journalists can't do financial projections, but not because they're not easy to do, it's just because you're just dealing in guesswork, to be honest. You're just guessing where the, where a, you know, the financial position that a club's going to be in the future. And, uh, you know, it's quite hard to do, really. You can kind of drive a coach and horses through them, really. But from my perspective, you know, it doesn't really matter, does it? I can write whatever I like. So, um, okay, now, what I need to do here, guys, is please follow the blue pen, actually, because otherwise you'd just jump all over the place. Right. What we've got for QPR, because QPR is a fantastic example of how you completely can mess things up and fall foul of the new rules. Okay, what we've got here, these two bits here, these little wavy lines, that is fact, right? Uh, actually, this, this bit, that should be pink to show that it's a projection. These two is actually fact. What we've got here is a, the profit and loss account of um, QPR. Now, the, it's the profit and loss account that effectively judges whether a club breaks even. You, know, you don't need to be very good at accounts to know that, that this, basically this is how it works. And when people talk in accounts about, you know, what is the bottom line, actually it's an accounting term, and they're just talking to what this figure's here. It could be profit or loss. And it just takes into account all the, you know, you've got your income up here, and then you've got your expenditure, and then what actually is the difference. Okay, so, so just focus on these two, just for a second, guys. This, this, the, this, this has been, so we know, in QPR's very first season in the, in the top flight, they lost 22.6 million pounds. That is fact, because it's in their accounts. Now, what we don't have for QPR are the accounts for the season that they've just been relegated in. We haven't got those yet. But you can make a kind of educated guess, which is the bit that I, I, I like doing, actually. Um, and I'm basically saying, well, turnover's going to be about the same. It's a little bit less because they finished a few places low, lower. But well, actually, what, what's hit QPR this season? What hit QPR was some, a couple of things. Wages, you know, the, the wages have increased. They signed loads of players. You know, generally, people think it's kind of approaching 90 million for wages. And I just, my numbers seem to suggest it probably was. And there's this figure here, this amortization figure's increased. Right, okay, what's that? Very quickly then. Um, if, if a club spends 100 million pounds on players, 
and, and all these players are on four-year contracts. The way it accounts for those players in the profit and loss account, you know, to see whether it's made a profit and loss, is it wouldn't give it as a, as a negative figure of 100 million pounds. If it's got 100 million pounds worth of players on four-year contracts, what it will do in the profit and loss account is it would have an amortization figure of 25 million pounds for those players, because it basically splits the, uh, the, the contract over the duration of the contract, you know, how much they've paid for the contract over the duration of the contract. They're going to write it down like some people would really with cars, you know, you might write down an asset over time. That's exactly what you've got to do, and it, it's, it's, it's a prescribed uh, uh, way of doing, dealing with things. And so what, what we've got here is the QPR, for example, so amortization, they signed loads of, loads of players, they spent loads of money, I've done, done the numbers. Actually, when you work out how much it impacts them each year, uh, it, 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 it goes up to that. So the net point is when, Sunderland, when um, QPR produce their accounts next, I think it's going to be about 68 million pounds. Now, it might not be. You know, it's just a bit of a guesswork, to be honest. And, uh, you know, I've had to include 4.5 million pounds for sacking Mark Hughes because that's an exceptional item. You actually have to, they paid him up, so that has to be included as well. So, okay, so that's, that's what I think it will be. And broadly, it's not going to be far off, to be honest. And then, okay, so what's it going to be in the championship? And this is where it gets really interesting because I think, bottom line, it's not going to be that much different. Okay, so why is it not going to be that much different? It's just, again, quite interesting. The big thing is the TV revenue here. What happens is um, parachute payments, of course, when they get relegated into the championship, uh, they get a, a few bits of extra. But it's, it's a massive drop in income. Okay, big drop in income. They're, they're probably going to be able to cut some of the expenses out so the expenses run in the club. But really, a lot of things they can't change. Amortization, they might get rid of a player or so. It's going to be quite hard to get rid of the players, you know. Um, so I don't see that dropping a great deal. Wages, now, this is interesting. Um, I've said it's going to drop. Uh, Fernandez, Tony Fernandez, uh, said that he that sixty percent of QPR players have got wage reduction clauses. He's come out publicly and said that. Now, actually, I don't think that's going to be worth very much. When we saw Southampton who got relegated, they famously said the same sort of thing. You know, it's going to be great. We've just got all these clauses. Actually, it didn't amount to a hill of beans, to be honest. And the problem is, one, I'm not entirely sure about his figure. I'm not entirely sure it's actually going to be right. I think he's pushing the point, but also. It's really hard to get players to join, you know, a club that's either newly promoted or is in the bottom three and to accept a wage reduction clause when they go into the championship. You know, what kind of agent would do that? It generally doesn't happen. So I don't think, you know, to get a bit of guesswork, I don't think the wages are going to come down very much, to be honest. Uh, I think they might end up selling one or two players possibly, but if they do, they're going to have to sell them at a loss, you know, compared to their book value when they sell them, they're going to be at a loss. So anyway, so I think they're going to, be, they're going to lose about 60 million pounds. Now, I might be wrong. It might only be 50 million. But it's way off breaking even, you know, in, in, this, in this division. So, and then, okay, so what does that mean? This is where we really get into the financial fair play pieces. What does that mean then? So what, what happens here is what happens if QPR get promoted? What if they bounce back, which is clearly the best possible scenario for QPR? Okay, well, the, the, the uh, FFP rules basically say that the acceptable deviation is £10 million. So you can lose £10 million and not get punished. Having said that, there is a bit of a punishment because Tony Fernandes is going to have to inject £6 million in equity uh, if you want to lose, uh, lose that figure. So that's, that's, that's one issue. But okay, and then the next £10 million, you, you, it's a sliding scale. It's done on a sliding scale. And it basically it works out to £6.7 million for the next £10 million. So if a club loses £20 million, they'll end up paying £6.7 in a fair play tax. Um, and the fair play tax basically gets kind of assessed, as we said, six months after the end of the season. So the club would, in this scenario, QPR would be in the Premier League. In the December, the, the, the accounts would still be submitted to the Football League, and they look at them and say, you've overspent, therefore you're going to have to pay a fair play tax. That's the way it works. And the way it works is we talked about it's uh, 6.7 for the first 20, in effect. 
but it's 100% thereafter. So if you do the calculation then on QPR, so they lose 60 million, perhaps they do, perhaps they don't. First 10 million is a country freebie. So actually they get taxed on 50 million. Get taxed on 50 million, 6.7 plus 40 million for the rest. They have to pay a fair pay tax of 46.7 million pounds based on this projection, which is a stunning amount of, a stunning amount of money. And what's also interesting is where does that money go? Where that money goes is actually to all the other clubs in the division, including those who got relegated, who stayed within the financial fair play rules. So there's a massive, you can argue that there's a massive kind of financial incentive for clubs next season to want QPR to go up, because if they do, they could get, you know, two, two and a half million pounds each. Now, the reason that figure is interesting is if we just go back to QPR here, do you see this piece about ticketing? This was when they got promoted. Yeah, they got 5.3 million pounds for ticketing. And that's kind of broadly average, really, for a club that size in, in, the, um, in the championship. So if they get 2.3 million pounds, it's like half their season ticket income in one go. And there's something else as well, which is really interesting, which is if they did get promoted, what happens to the unused parachute payments? Um, what happens in the, in the, the, the Football League is that if, if a club gets promoted and they've got unused parachute payments, that then gets spread about against the other clubs that are still in the division. So the, under the new TV deal, the club gets 60 million pounds of parachute payments and they get paid 22 or 23 million pounds in the first season. But the rest, which is another, perhaps about 37 million, yes, about 37 million pounds would then get divvied out amongst the other teams in the division. So what I'm basically saying is if QPR bounced back, each team could be on for somewhere approaching five million pounds for QPR bouncing back, which is really quite interesting. Um, anyway, so, but, but the interesting thing is, you know, even taking that, that you know, uh, the redistribution of the um, uh, parachute payments out, out, you know, this, this, this is really quite an interesting, an interesting figure. Okay, so what I want to do now, because I'm conscious of time, um, oh yeah, what happens if they don't get promoted? This is really interesting. What happens if they don't bounce back? Yes, how do the rules work? Right, they submit their accounts on December 14. They'll say, well, you've gone over the 10 million pounds, guys. So there's a transfer ban. Transfer ban will go in on 20, uh, January 2015. When does it get lifted? Well, it only gets lifted when they either report, you know, that they're back within the, the limits again or, or whether they can prove that they will be. And, you know, the parameters start coming down. So from 2014-15, it's down to 8 million. If equity is injected, then it's, 20, then it's 6 million for the season after. Potentially, QPR, who've got players on you know, reasonably long wages, could be stuck for a number of years on a transfer ban if they don't go up. So they kind of caught either way, potentially. I mean, I guess they'd rather go up, but if they don't go up, they're in real trouble, which I think is interesting. Right, okay. Now, this, this bit here, hopefully um, you can read. I need my scroller. What, what I've done here is just, it's a bit disjointed, this presentation, apologies. Uh, accounting loopholes. Every time you hear people talking about FFP, they often go about, oh, there's loads of accounting loopholes. So actually, what I've done is I've, I've uh, pulled together a list of all the ones that I've spotted, which I just think is quite interesting in itself. And then we can work out, actually, are they loopholes at all? Are they really loopholes? Or are they just people trying things that will ultimately get caught? So uh, the, the first one I've split down is what I've called pure related party transactions, PSG sponsor. So what that is, is PSG are owned by the Qatari government. The uh, Qatar Tourist Authority, who are owned by the Qatari government, are sponsoring the club for huge amounts of money. Um, 200 million euros a year. It's just completely ridiculous. It's well over the top. It's never fair value. And, and it is quite interesting that, you know, the, the financial fair play rules, UEFA um, rules, they've set up this club financial control board to look at related party transactions. And th their brief is to kind of um, bring that down to within fair value if clubs have overstated the position financially, which PSG 
clearly have. And what is really interesting about the financial loopholes is PSG, with all their might, with all their kind of, uh, you know, their, their financial acumen or whatever, the best scam that they could come up with for getting the, reaching the financial fair play rules is the related party transaction, which is enshrined in the rules and is so patently obvious that, um, you know, it, it, it isn't really a loophole at all. It, it's just breaching the rules, you know, effectively. Okay, so that's one scenario. I get, it gets into kind of more technical details as further, as further go down. What I've called is a mixed related party transaction, e.g. Etihad. This is one thing that's really, I think, is quite interesting, which is Man City, the Etihad deal. Um, you know, I think everybody in this room would agree that Etihad could have got that deal cheaper if they'd really wanted, you know, but they didn't. They probably didn't want to get it cheaper because um, it helps Man City. Now, you can argue that actually, given the, the, the deals that have taken place since then, that actually the Etihad, Etihad deal kind of could be justified, and perhaps it will be justified, and perhaps the... the, the, the um, uh, UEFA won't, act, the Club Financial Control Board won't write it down. But why I've called it a mixed related party transaction is because what they've actually, I think what they've done here is they've deliberately mixed up um, a sponsorship deal of naming of the rights of the stadium, the development of the youth team, there's a call centre. You know, it's really hard. It's going to be really hard for the Club Financial Control Board to pick that out and say, you know, what the individual elements of that are, are going to be worth. It actually makes it a bit muddy, and I think they've done that deliberately. Uh, but don't quote me on that. Okay, uh, then we've got. <laughs> right, uh, next one, declared related party transaction. This is quite interesting. This one is something the City have done. City crop up quite a few times in these things. What, what they've done, if you read the latest club accounts for Man City, is there's, a, there's an, a, a, an amount in there that says Manchester City, um, it, it's a plus in their profit and loss accounts of £13 million. Pounds. It's a plus in the, in the P&L, and, it, and it's for, it says, it's a related party transaction, so that they've declared it's a related party. So it's, And it's basically the owner of... Manchester City has paid Manchester City thirteen million pounds for what's called intellectual rights and know-how, right? And that and that's it. You know, journalists have asked City, you know, what is it? You know, it could be something written on the back of an envelope. You know, that nobody knows. You know, they they haven't been forthcoming and explained what that is. But having said that, they have declared it in the in the account. So you know, the Club Financial Control Board should surely pick this up and then try and. But then they've still got to do the digging. They've still got to do the digging and find out what on earth it is and, and assign fair value. And, you know, that could, in itself could be difficult. So, again, it's kind of part of the muddy, muddiness concept that I think they're trying to do. Um, okay, what else have we got? Uh, Non-football-related income. Now, this is uh, another interesting one. Um, the rules say that income, to be judged whether you've broken even or not, needs to be relevant income. So relevant income, you know, it's... It, it, you could broadly describe it as football-related, broadly, although the definition within the rules is very, very loose. So it's really unclear as to what you could count as being relevant and not. You know, you could stretch it either way, uh, particularly if you're a sports lawyer, I'm sure. And, uh, so what, what's happened here? So here's an example. Like Real have announced that they've been uh, developed or developing a hotel concept complex in Dubai. You know, is that relevant football income for, for, for Real? Possibly. You know, it's kind of on the edge, really. Uh, Traps on Spore famously have announced that they're, they're building a hydroelectric power plant, which surely can't be counted as, as, uh, as football-related income, but it just gets a bit messy. You know, if they do a property deal, it's all kind of messy around the edges. So that's one area where, you know, it, it's a little bit murky. Okay, changing account duration, e.g. Liverpool. Now, this is my favourite one, because I actually think this is one of the very few loopholes that actually is a loophole and they can get away with and hasn't been foreseen in the rules. Um, and what happened here, uh, it's quite clever, um, what Liverpool basically changed their account duration. The account cutoff was July, end of July, and they moved it to the end of May. Now, there were actually, in fairness, sound financial reasons why they would do that. It's all to do with the timing of income. You know, in the old days, 
kind of have a, have a longer counting period into the summer because you'd be getting season ticket income, which is really, really important to the club. You know, historically now, you know, things have changed. That's not so important to the club now. So they said, well, actually, it makes sense. We're going to cut the account period off at the end of the season. That does make sense. But the cynic would say, well, actually, what happens there is when they produce their accounts, they only had 10 months of wages within the accounts because they had it over a 10-month period. And actually, that helped the club by about £13 million. And actually, Liverpool um, were pretty close to, to breaching the FFP rules, for the European rules anyway. Um, I mean, I think they'll pass, but, you know, it was a bit uncomfortable, too close to comfort potentially. And so there is an argument you could make potentially that they, it, well, it, it definitely helped them and they might have had that in the back of their mind when they did it. However, they can only do it once. It's been done now and, you know, it's not open to other clubs. Man City already account to the end of May and you can't possibly bring it back any further. Um, transactions and costs outside club accounts. This is an interesting one. There was a piece from uh, a chap called Ian Herbert who writes for The Independent and he did a piece on City where he's... Um, effectively has said that it's reliably informed that City are putting through some, uh, are intending to put through some wage costs outside the club accounts. So that'd be, um, you know, um, people who cut the grass or sell the tickets that they potentially might not go through the club accounts. It'll go through something, some other, some other body. Um, and Chelsea did sort of something different. They, 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 um, they cancelled, some preference shares were cancelled that, that uh, Chelsea held. And it's a bit of a murky transaction. Nobody quite knows why these, these preference shares were cancelled. But it boosted their profit and loss account by about um, £13 million. Pounds, and nobody quite understands why it was. But there is a suspicion, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure whether it's true in the, in the Chelsea case, but it might be true in the, in the City case, that actually what's happened is that they've, 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 somehow there's been some injection or something happening outside the club accounts to, to help the club. You know, why did Specify B cancel these preference shares? It didn't quite make sense. But who, who knows? But anyway, there is some evidence that some clubs are trying to do it. However, having said that, it's not really a loophole because, in theory, the Club Financial Control Board needs to include all relevant income. And it's still relevant, even if it's, you know, in, a, in an account outside the club, you know? So, so that should be included. It just makes life difficult for them. Prior, player write-down in, in season prior to FFP, e.g. Man City. Right, what they did, they, this is quite interesting. Uh, in the first season before the UEFA's financial fair play rules came in, they actually wrote off a number of players um, in their books. We talked earlier about the kind of amortization piece. And what they had, they had a number of players, Bridge and De La Cruz, and they basically wrote them down to zero. They said they've got zero resale value, so we take them down to nothing. And it meant that there was a hit in the profit and loss account in the year before the FFP test started. And actually, from an accounting perspective, you can do that. You can do that, of course you can. But from the FFP rules, you can't. Because those players were still at the club and because the contract is still in operation, you have to write those contracts off over the life of the contract. And so, in, interesting for City, it, it boosted their profit and loss, their, their profit figure, in effect, by about £6.5 million for each of those two seasons that... Um, first judged in the FFP. So they got about 30 million out of that. And again, the, F the um, Club Financial Control Board should pick that up and, you know, say, well, actually, that doesn't make sense. It's, it's not, in you know, it just, again, it's going to be quite difficult for them. And I, I do sympathise with them. Uh, cancel provision. This is a kind of similar thing that's, that Chelsea did. Is this, a, is this a loophole? I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. What happened was they made a big provision in the season before FFP started when they sacked Ancelotti. Um, and then the very first season when the, prof, when the, the accounts actually could have to be counted for, for FFP, they said, actually, no, that thing didn't happen. Ancelotti got another job, so actually we don't actually need to pay as much money as we'd expected. So they were able to get what's called a write-up, and they got, I think it's about three or four million pound write-up in the accounts for a provision that didn't happen. And it was a provision they made before FFP started. So I'm not entirely sure whether it's a loophole, and perhaps it was, it was a prudent way of accounting, but it does 
inflate their accounts and potentially in a way that's non-relevant football income, non-relevant income. You know, is, is the council provision relevant? I'm not entirely sure it is. Um, exclusions, youth and community spend. This is going to be interesting to see. As we know, um, spend on, on, on infrastructure and youth and community spend uh, is, is excluded from the break-even tests in, in, in UEFA. Um, but the, the thing is that actually no, nobody knows how much any of these clubs spend on, on youth and community. Um, it's not detailed in the account anywhere, so we don't really know what they spend. I mean, you know, it will be in their interest for those figures to be high because that will help them get through the financial fair play test. You know, but obviously, having said that, the accounts get audited. They get audited, so actually it's not as if they can do anything untoward. So is it a loophole? I'm not entirely sure, but it'd be interesting to see, and it would be great to have a breakdown of this, but we just don't get it. Uh, account auditing issues. This is really interesting. This is a piece, um, was it Gandini? Was it Gandini and AC, uh, AC Milan? Yes. Uh, he's, he's the uh, deputy of the European Club Association and uh, director or CEO or whatever of, of, of AC Milan. And he pointed something out. He, he, uh, he did an interview and he, he, he said that he suspects that the auditing of accounts that are taking place in some of the former Soviet republics are actually, is actually very poor. And so, um, you know, some of the clubs like perhaps Anzi or, or, or Zenit are actually having their accounts audited, <laughs> effectively, in a not, in, not in a very, uh, you know, transparent and correct way. So hence they'll meet financial. His, his argument was, allegedly. yeah, allegedly. His argument was, his argument was, uh, allegedly they they could meet, they could, uh, you know, help meet the financial fair play rules because the account the auditing was weak. Having said that, though, here's my caveat: the, the FFP rules say that all the accounts need to be audited and properly audited. So the club financial control board again should pick that up if they think there's any issues in it. But it just makes their life that much difficult. Uh, just a few more at the bottom, and state subsidies, is that a loophole? Uh, there's some issue, this is a big issue at the moment, isn't it, about, um, certainly in um, Holland, there was an issue about state subsidies of, of grounds. I've got my own pet, hey, not a pet, hey, but um, there's a piece about um, West Ham. I mean, West Ham have got a £600 million stadium, and they're paying £2 million rent a year, you know? Is that, is that a state subsidy? Who knows? You know, it doesn't sound a bit weird to me. But um, So there is an issue about state subsidies. And, you know, we talked earlier about, um, about the thing, obviously the event that happened in, in, in Real Madrid. So that's something to watch out for. Membership fees. Now, membership fees, I'm re this is the last but one point on my whole presentation. <laughs> membership fees, uh, there is an issue there in as much as um, the clubs, particularly in Spain, like Real Amos, Barcelona, are, are members' clubs. They're owned by the members. And what happens, you know, rather than, they, than buying an oligarch or whatever, and so what happens there is that the members will actually pay a membership fee, and that membership fee goes to the club. So in effect, the owners are paying some money into the club, which the club then uses as income. Now, those, those members will presumably also buy season tickets. So potentially, you could argue that season tickets might have been a bit higher if only they didn't have their membership fees, I guess, is the other argument. But, uh, you know, the reason some people have pointed their finger at this is to say, well, that doesn't make sense, you know? Abramovich can't stick his hand in his pocket and put in 30 million, 25 million pounds or whatever a season. But it's okay for the Spanish clubs to use their members, who are their owners, to inject cash into the club. So that is kind of a, not sort of a loophole, but it's a, it's a bone of contention. But it's okay, you know? It, it's, it's permitted under the rules. And then tax difference, is that a loophole? It's a bit tenuous, my last point, which is, um, it's just something that affects uh, clubs across Europe, that there's different tax regimes. So actually, it isn't entirely a level playing field. So what we had in uh, Galatasaray, you know, they're another one who gained from having a nice stadium built by the government um, and fairly low rates. Um, they, they have very low taxes, so hence they can sign, you know, Schneider or, or Drogba and um, actually they don't have to pay as much out in wages because the tax rate is fairly low. You know, there's also issues, on the converse of that, we obviously got the situation in France where potentially they might have a 75% tax rate levied on the club. 
which will make things harder for them. So it's not really, but you could argue that perhaps there's a little bit of a loophole because it's not a level playing field within Galatasaray. So I think, God, I've gone on a long time. I think that's probably it for, for me. I, I should probably guess I could probably talk about quite a lot of this, quite a lot. So thank you very much. I don't think I need to actually speak for very long after that poor discourse of, um, of FFP. So thanks for that. I thought that was, that was really, really something. Something brilliant. I mean, there's a lot of really good stuff in there. So um, I'm Daniel G. I'm a lawyer um, at FFW, um, and I do um, quite a lot of FFP work for a number of clients and, and other football regulatory work as well. And what I wanted to do for maybe just five or ten minutes, because I know we're running quite, quite a bit over, and then we can get on to some questions, is talk about uh, three things. The first thing, I can talk about more things, but I think three is a good number. The first thing is the... Um, the Daniel Striani challenge to the FFP rules that um, the complaint has been made to the Commission recently in the last month or so. Um, the second thing I want to talk about is um, sanctions, and the actual sanctions that will um, occur um, for clubs participating in European competition. And the third thing, um, they're all actually UEFA-based, really, in, in this sense, and we can talk about Premier League and Football League rules as well. The third thing um, is actually the timing of the sanctions. And I, I say that, Daniel, because I wrote a a recent blog, actually based on something that, that Ed wrote a while back on, I just took a, a, a couple of steps um, further about when actually the sanctions will take place for clubs in breach of the UEFA regulations. So if I, if I just briefly um, just talk about uh, what's happened, which is actually of real major significance to, um, to UEFA, is that you know when these regulations came in, um, and Sean and Ed have put touched on this in quite a lot of detail, everyone was saying, well, obviously someone will challenge the rules. A club's going to be really annoyed that they're having to adhere to the regulations. There's going to be some type of challenge that will, that will then occur. But, you know, I think just like, for example, I compare it to third-party ownership, when the Premier League banned it and the Football League banned it and the FA banned it, you know, everyone thought, well, obviously there's something wrong with that and that one of the regulatory authorities is going to get sued or they're going to be taken to court or there's going to be a complaint. But nothing's happened on that. I know UEFA are doing certain things at the moment, but the point being is that it takes more than just words for things to happen, and we shouldn't underestimate the significance of what happened a few months ago with Daniel Striani, with the help of um, Jean-Luc Dupont, who is obviously very famous for Bosman and for a very important uh, seminal European case, Mecca Medina, um, was that he has effectively made a complaint on behalf of an agent, Striani, uh, to challenge the break-even aspect of the UEFA rules. And the reason why that's um, important is for a number of reasons. One is they've gone to the European Commission for the complaint, which is, uh, in effect, one of the most cost-effective ways of, um, of uh, making some type of challenge to the regulations. Because you could do it by the national court, but it would take a number of years to potentially um, go through to the stage of actual trial. And so, in effect, because there is an EU-wide dimension, um, Striani has decided that a uh, complaint to the Commission is the best step. Very briefly, um, the two um, or three points, you can condense them down, um, that they are arguing primarily is, one, um, that there is a restriction on the ability of an owner or potential owner to be able to invest um, in their football club or in a potential football club, or should they buy the club. The issue being is that um, just as Man City, just as PSG, just as Chelsea and other clubs, and they have done in the past, um, the ability of um, a club owner to be able to invest in whatever they want in their club is effectively fettered and curtailed 
by the break-even restriction. So that's, that's the, basic, the basic issue. A leading, uh, leading on to the second point, effectively then, that um, there is a barrier to entry um, for clubs wanting to, uh, in the short term at least anyway, be able to come up through the ranks, play and win in the domestic competitions and qualify for European competition where the large amounts um, of money are. And as a result, what I'm not quite sure if the term's right, but he, Striani and Dupont deem this a fossilization of the status quo, which is effectively the largest clubs who have the largest revenues in order to offset costs are the ones in the best position to benefit from FFP break-even for, for obvious reasons, that they're in the Champions League already, they're in the top echelons of the domestic competitions, they're going to be earning the biggest revenues, they've got the best players already on board, um, and they're already in a privileged, stronger, better position to be able to continue their dominance at the domestic and then the European League. So, um, on, on, on the timing point of the FFP challenge, um, the really interesting thing, I think, is that um, this isn't going to be a quick process. And I was um, chatting to Sean, and we did um, a law and sport um, uh, quick chat a few weeks ago. Um, and the point generally being is that I won't bore you with the procedure, because it, it, it is um, quite boring, and the notice, the procedural notice is quite long. But the basic premise is that it, it might be likely that the European Commission, within about a year or so, may come to an outline decision about whether to take forward the complaint or to reject the complaint. Either way, regardless if it's taken forward as a formal investigation or it's rejected, the next steps will be probably um, either if the complaint's taken forward, the Commission will issue what's called a statement of objections, actually detailing why they believe in a number of ways the break-even part of the rules are anti-competitive, along with reaching the other fundam fundamental freedoms of the EU, like free movement, free movement of capital, um, et cetera, free movement establishment, et cetera. But if the, re if the complaint is rejected, the Commission then effectively issue a rejection decision, but then it will be for Striani to be able to appeal the rejection decision. And he'll appeal the rejection decision to the general court, which will take a number of years, and then if there's an appeal to the Court of Justice, it'll be another few years after that. So the point generally being is that we're not expecting <laughs> any final decision anytime soon whatsoever. But what we'll get in the interim is some very interesting sound bites and decisions from the European Commission, from UEFA coming out with statements, Gianni and Dupont coming out with things, a rejection from the Commission or an approval from the Commission, and then a whole procedural raft of long estimated court and um, appeal decisions. That's the first point. Second point is sanctions. And this is the thing that I think is one of the most crucial things about um, FFP, and I'm glad Ed didn't talk about it as much because it means I can, I can talk about it in a tiny bit more detail, <clears throat> which is this. My, my own personal view is that, um, and, and it may be the case here or may not, is that whenever I read about um, FFP generally, and it's in the wider press and even you know, debates, wherever it may be, club and et cetera, on the football pitch, I think that everyone has the preconceived notion that um, any club that breaches the acceptable deviation provisions, as Ed sat out so expertly in his slides, will automatically be expelled from, from the competition or be banned for the next season. I'm not convinced that if a club falls, let's say, 2 million euros outside of acceptable deviations for UEFA, so let's say 47 million euros, 
that they will have a ban imposed on them from next season's competition. Because, as I think, I'm not sure they mentioned, but in a couple of other slides further on, there's a whole raft of sanctions on a sliding scale that permit the club financial control body to do a number of things. So, for example, it starts as a warning. It can go on to withholding prize money. It can go on to fining. It can go on to points deductions. It can go on to refusal to register the full squad of players. It can go on to um, um, expelling a club from the current year. And it can do with um, um, removing titles. And it can also ban for future years. So I think anyone expecting at anyone expecting it as a certainty that a club who just breaches the FFP acceptable deviation provisions is going to be expelled, banned, taken away out of the competition as an automatic sanction may well be mistaken. So that's my, my first point there. And the reason why I think that's important is because if there are some clubs that are still spending and may go slightly over, I think always bear in mind that a breach of FFP doesn't necessarily lead to an absolute ban for next season's competition. I think that's the, the second point to mention. And the third point I just want to mention briefly, and then we can go on to the questions. Um, it's something that I blogged about last, um, last week, and I can send a link on to Sean if, if you want to send it out. But it's this, which I think in some ways is unsatisfactory, but I'm not quite sure what UEFA can do to remedy the situation. So, very briefly, I'll try and give you a brief timeline, and maybe Sean can send a timeline around in case I get a bit complicated in my head. Perfect. Clubs um, are in the next, what are we now, 17th, within 18th, within one month, are submitting the first of their two years' worth of accounts to UEFA. So on the 15th of July, they're submitting their 11, 12 accounts. Depending on when their year-end account finishes, They'll either then submit, I believe, um, their second year accounts, the 12-13 accounts, in October or the spring um, of next year. The issue, therefore, being is that come the beginning of next season, i.e. the time that the Champions League and Europa League is starting for every club who's participating in the competition, the club financial control body aren't going to be able to sanction anybody at that point for break-even breach. So what does that mean? Okay. If they can't sanction for break-even breach at the outset of the competition, when the clubs submit their second year's worth of accounts, which makes up two years for calculating the break-even, either in October or in the springtime, most probably it means that only sanctioning decisions by the club financial control body are going to be when most of the season's Champions League and Europa League competition has already occurred. Which means sanctioning decisions by the CFPB are going to be in the springtime. So you can imagine my, what I'm next going to say, which is let's take the highly theoretical position that Club A um, participate in Champions League in the 13-14 season. They submit their accounts and the club financial control body realize either at the beginning of 2014 or sometime at the beginning of 2014 that there are 100 million euros outside of acceptable deviation. Therefore, we're going to sanction that club. But they're in the semi-finals of the Champions League. What does the club financial control body do? It has the power to be able to expel that club from competition. 
that also has the power to remove titles. So the one, one possible option, and you can correct me if I'm wrong in anything I'm saying here, but I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced I'm wrong, but maybe, is that um, they, the club financial control body may let the club play out that season, win the competition, and then actually remove their title as a retrospective action. For clubs that aren't in, that have already been eliminated from that season's competition, next season's competition, and fall well outside of break even and are banned as a result after the appeal process, then they will be, sorry, and are out of competition, they will be banned from the next season. So that's, that's crystal clear. But I think the, the competition and integrity issue potentially, and this isn't a slight on UEFA because I'm not quite sure what else they can potentially do for timing of when the accounts are submitted, but it leads to quite an unsatisfactory position if clubs in the latter stages of the competition are playing against clubs that have um, complied with the break-even regulations but aren't sanctioned in that same season. So I hope that, I hope that was clear. That, they're the three things I really wanted to say. Um, Feel free, I, I'm, I can maybe answer some questions on third-party ownership and FFP, which is quite interesting, I think. And I had a few other points that... Um okay. Yeah, okay. Two more minutes, I'm sorry to take some more time on it. Um, about a year and a half ago, um, I was speaking with um, an Argentinian football lawyer who actually, I, I can't, can't claim credit for it because he came up with the idea first, a guy called Ariel Rec in Argentina. And he said, Dan, what actually happens for uh, third-party ownership purposes, for uh, TPO purposes, for FFP? How is it accounted for? I was, like, I was thinking, oh, he said, actually, I'm sure it's a pretty easy solution. But then I researched into it a little bit more. He worked out, actually, and we'll talk about the regulatory background in a tiny bit, um, that clubs who um, are participating in leagues that don't have prohibitions on third-party ownership are at a distinct advantage for FFP compliance. So if I take you back one very quick stage, third-party ownership of a football player is effectively the ability of um, a company to have a contractual right over the club to the future transfer value of a particular player. If that makes sense. And what, uh, what happens, as I'm sure I've spoken to a lot of you about in some of Sean's previous lectures that we gave, is after the Tevez and Mascherano affair, certain leagues, including the Premier League, Football League, FA, League Un, Polish League now especially, outlawed third-party ownership um, in their leagues. And the interesting indirect side effect of that prohibition now is that, um, is if I give this example, which is probably the easiest example to give. Let's say we've got um, two clubs. We've got Arsenal, who are in the Premier League, and we have Porto, who are in the Portuguese League. They're both competing for the same player. Um, Porto, in the Portuguese League, are under no TPO um, prohibition. Arsenal have a TPO pro prohibition in the Premier League, which means that when they buy a player, they have to extinguish all the third-party rights in that player before they can register that player with the Premier League and with the FA. Porto are under no such obligation. They can maintain a third-party ownership contract with the third-party owner and potentially play less. And the way this plays out effectively is, is this. Let's say Arsenal want to buy a player for 10 million euros and Porto want to buy the same player for 10 million euros. 
in the Arsenal situation in the parallel universe, if they want to account for that player that they bought, let's say they've bought, bought him on a five-year deal, they would have to account two million euros in amortization costs split each year for five years, 10 million in total. Porto, on the other hand, let's theoretically say that they've had to pay 10 million euros, but the third-party owner has agreed with them that they will keep a 5 million euro stake in that player, which means Porto only have to pay 5 million euros for that player. That obviously means it's the same contract over five years. They are paying one mid, so they are accounting 1 million euros per season for amortization costs. You can see the, the disparity effectively, which is on one side, Arsenal having to account for 10 million euros over five years, Porto having to account for 5 million euros over five years. The flip side is that if they spend, if, if they sell that player, they may get less as a transfer reward, but at the same time, at least for the, the benefit at the time of purchase, non-clubs you know, that aren't um, fettered by the ability to, um, uh, to have players who are third-party owned are at an advantage. There's a question there somewhere. Oh, okay. Um, and the interesting thing that's developed actually in the latest rules is that UEFA actually put a couple of rules in uh, which stipulated that um, a club couldn't artificially increase its revenue for FFP purposes if in an FFP window, i.e. the 12, 11, 11, 12, or 12, 13, et cetera, on, if they were struggling for money, they couldn't release equity in the player by selling part of that player's rights and account for it in revenue. They can only account for the revenue from a, a player sale when full player transfer occurs out of the club. And that takes away half of the potential loophole, apparently. So on that point, I'll leave that there, and we can, we can take some questions. Well, that's it for this show. So thank you for tuning in. Remember to check out lawinsport.com for all the latest expert commentary and legal analysis from the world of sport.